uh, uh, you're listening to the, uh, uh, the, uh, oh, don't tell me now, don't tell me no, uh, uh, listen to the, uh, oh, uh, uh, this means podcast. Oh, <laughs> yep, yep, yep. <laughs> The Annie-nominated storyboard artist Michael Rugo has stopped by, and someone online is selling their house with a complete Taz room. Would you buy it? <laughs> so, of course, you realize this means podcast. Are you ready, eager young space cadet? Meep, meep. supposed to be an earth-shattering kaboom. Hello and welcome to Of Course You Realize This Means Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Graves, and with me is a wonderful, talented individual who has worked on so many projects that I know you know of, such as BoJack Horseman, New Looney Tunes, Cat Burglar, and Cuphead. Obviously, Looney Tunes cartoons if he's here. So please come with me and let's dive deep into the behind the scenes of storyboarding on Looney Tunes cartoons. Uh, Michael Rucco, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Doing great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. It's an honor to have you. Uh, congratulations on the Annie nomination for Looney Tunes cartoons and your work on Hex Appeal. Oh, thanks so much. Yeah. It's a wonderful short. I love watching it and I'm going to be revisiting it every Halloween. I'm glad. I love it when things sort of become perennials. That's like with the um, the Christmas episode from... I think the previous yeah. year, it's just not, it's nice hearing people uh, reach out and say, Hey, I watched, we watched the Christmas episode, you know, this year. I'm like, Oh, that's great. You know, it's, that's it's so I'm cool. glad that people are tuning in and watching it and stuff every year. Absolutely. And you can check those out on HBO max right now. They, I don't think they're going to be leaving the streaming service because they are their bread and butter. They, they were made for that service. Yeah, hope, Hopefully uh, let's, <laughs> I'm hoping to, exactly. I'm watching everything from afar wondering what's going to happen this week. <laughs> you know, what's going on? Aren't we all, yeah. but we are while paying attention to that, also paying attention to the Annie awards, which will be airing on and it's the 50th anniversary of the Annie Awards. So the 50th one, what a, what an honor to be yeah. uh, having Looney Tunes a part of that. Yeah. Uh, but that will be February 25th. So we'll be rooting for you and Candy Milo. Yeah, I'm so I'm so happy to have a that Candy's sort of my fellow nominee from the show. I love Candy. She's so sweet. That's amazing. Yeah, she's a friend of the podcast. And uh, she was on talking about King Tweety last. So it's always an honor to, to have her to discuss Looney Tunes and granny and uh, witch hazel with her uh, she really loved the character and you know she was rooting for it to become its own series or oh, you know I a mean, spin-off I would series. be I mean witch hazel is such a wonderful character so I wouldn't be so she really is. and especially with candy's you know candy's witch hazel because even going in when, we, when I was doing that short I knew that candy was going to be witch hazel and so like yeah. when I worked on that board I was just picturing her reads you know, I wasn't oh, even wow. picturing June Foray. I was picturing Candy because Candy sort of embodies, she can embody that character really, really well. Yeah, that's so cool. So I was I was happy to kind of channel, 
kind of like pre predetermined kind of how she would deliver lines and just sort of and then once I heard the animatic with her in it and I heard her do her witch's cackle and her like boil boil kind of like over the cauldron kind of stuff I was like perfect it's it's it elevated to another level it's like when you when you you used to hearing stuff uh with no music and then once you hear it with the music you're like oh it's like it's like a whole nother layer it's a whole nother character's been added yeah and candy is embodied like candy carries that short she i I mean she's she's fantastic she's the only vocal performance outside of a a mel blank hiccup (laughs) yeah that little (laughs) sound which is great i'm glad they put that into same same oh my gosh this is so cool so uh, sticking with Witch Hazel real quick, did you go back to the, the Bewitched Bunny and like the classic Chuck Jones shorts and and really like break those down and get her her style back? Uh, or was this yeah. kind of reinvigorated yeah. by everything else that was going on at the time? It was it's kind of like, well, with everything on the show, we the first thing we always did was look back at the old yeah. stuff. And, you know, there were some great Witch Hazels. The first one, which is is a bewitched bunny is the first one so. with the Hansel and yes. Gretel. That one's like almost like it's witch hazel, but it's even her design is still kind of they're still figuring out. She works like a lot of it is she's in profile. Mm-hmm. So I didn't really look at that one in terms of like artistic direction for mm-hmm. that one. But Broomstick Bunny, which is the second yes. one, uh, where you see all those wonderful like um almost flat backgrounds where like there would be the table would be painted onto the wall, <laughs> but the the vase would be floating <laughs> and all that stuff with her at the cauldron with her cat and uh, bugs with the, it's funny. I wa- watching that cartoon. I, when I, cause I, whenever I start a cartoon, uh, if I'm, if we're basing it on something in particular, a specific character, I'll go back and look at the cartoons. And I forgot how bony and thin bugs, legs are when he's in that costume, <laughs> yes. when he's dressed up in the witch costume, <laughs> he's got like these thin, like, like bony legs. And it's like, it's weird, but I kind of love it. And it really juxtaposes the mask shape. You know, I, I think that was the, the yeah. joke there for sure. And yeah. I did myself up tonight. You know, like yeah. it's, it's, I love that cartoon. Everything about that cartoon. I, I adore that one. Same, same. So before we get more into Looney Tunes, cause I have a lot to talk to you about first, we've got to talk about some news and. Oh yeah. Yeah. I love this. <laughs> that Let's... comes our way from a wonderful article in the independent where a house full of Looney Tune toys is on sale in the UK. Now, if you are in the UK and you want to, I guess, put in a bid, uh, track down this independent article, uh, and find the listing on rightmove.com. Uh, it is going for 79,000 pounds, which translates to around $96,000 in the, in the U S and I, I don't know, like, I, I think having a full room full of Taz plush is a, a bigger selling point than having an empty room. <laughs> so what, what was your take on this? It's definitely, it's, it's what I guess you would call it in real estate. You would call it a conversation piece. You would call yes. it something where it's like, well, here's our Taz room. <laughs> and the funny thing is looking at the picture, first of all, like looking at it in terms of like the dimension, dimensions of the room, just trying to look at it. Mm-hmm. It looks like an actually fairly, it's supposed to be like a second bedroom on the listing. Yeah. It's a very small room. It seems very small or maybe just the, the ta- some, I mean, some of the Taz plush is really big, but the other thing I kind of noticed when I was looking at this picture of all these Tazes Please. was that I can't tell if it's a lot of the, I, I, 
you realize that in terms of like Taz's design and in, in regards to a plush, there's not a lot of room. There's not a lot of room for like, like Taz is always going to be that specific shape that that mouth open with the teeth. And yeah. I can't tell if it's a lot of the same plush or if there's like a, different ones. Like some of them are probably like nice ones you'd find at a toy store. And some were probably like at a carnival or found in like a crane game. And they're like cheapo like sawdust filled toys. I can't really tell the picture isn't great quality. Right. But just the fact that almost all the Taz's have like the same mouth open, you know, fuzzy eyebrow, teeth exposed. <laughs> uh, and then I love how there's just like one lone bugs just laying on the floor in the back. Yeah. And, all the way in the back. And I, <laughs> I, for a second, I thought that the weight from all the Taz's was breaking that, that like standing shelf in the back, but it's just, it's just, it's just the design of the shelf. I thought it was just warped from the weight of <laughs> holding so many Taz's on it, on it. I mean, it, it is a image that will definitely stick with you. And yeah, they, I don't think they weigh very, very much, but it definitely does give that like warped, uh, standee kind of feel because it looks like, like it's going to topple over. It yeah. does, but I think yeah, I, I definitely think that's the design of that shelf. Which does the house also come with that shelf? I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, you assume if the house, if the if because normally if you buy a house, they're gonna everything's gonna be cleared out by the end. But if they're if the selling point of the house is it's does it come with? Did it say in the article? I forgot to check closely. Does it say it comes with them? It doesn't say. It says that it has. A washer and dryer, um, two bedrooms, uh, three fish tanks. Talk about a spin cycle. <laughs> yeah. It's like the only, that's like um, the only thing that spins in that apartment. And a large sculpture of a spider. I saw that hanging on the wall. And it's like, <laughs> what is that? I mean, like, and here's the thing is that, like, yeah, normally you'd get the apartment and they would clear everything out. I couldn't tell if this is just like, listen, I couldn't. I just didn't have the time to clear up like all 87 of these Taz plushes. So just <laughs> picture a bed and like a dresser and like a nightstand in here. Ignore, ignore everything, all the, the brown and light brown and teeth. Just ignore that. Just pretend that's not, that's not there. Ignore the teeth. You just got to yeah. look past it. <laughs> yeah, It's like a clue into like, also kind of like, I mean, I've, I've met people who have excess, not obsessive collections, but they have prominent collections of things. And so like, this doesn't really surprise me. It's not yeah. like a daunting thing, but it's like, I guess, I mean, the, the thing is too, is that there was a lot of Taz. Taz was really big in the nineties. And since then they've made tons. I remember commercials for Taz, like what, like the toy that you'd pull on, you pull on a thing and he would, he would vibrate and spin. Yeah. And like there was a lot of Taz uh, merch so, and he had his own show yeah and so like that they they went to town uh <laughs> so this person clearly a true collector had, yeah a true collector you know and at least it looks like it's just limited to plushes too so thank goodness there isn't like you know because i'm sure there's tons of t-shirts and and you know head like the head mugs yes and all that stuff and speaking of taz collecting i wanted to go ahead and uh Announce the winner. Uh, I did a giveaway thanks to Funko Official and Warner Brothers. They teamed up and partnered with This Means Podcast to do a giveaway. And uh, as Warner Brothers is celebrating 100 years of storytelling, who better to be center stage than the ultimate super fans, the Looney Tunes? That's how Warner Brothers is positioning the Looney Tunes in this celebration. And so what they're doing is they're putting the Looney Tunes in these different costumes and pairings. 
And this one, the first one that came out, literally I went to Hot Topic and I saw it on the shelves on January 1st. So this was like a must have uh, for me, but seeing it on the shelves immediately gave me a lot of good vibes for this year going forward and this celebration and and just seeing Taz mixed with Scooby-Doo for this, I thought that was really creative. And, you know, they're they're both eaters. They're both, you know, uh, they, they communicate without using real words. <laughs> you can kind of make out what they're saying <laughs> if you listen closely. Um, but yeah, I just thought this was a really cool, well-designed Funko figure. And you can check out the entire line over at Funko.com and uh, see Daffy as Shaggy. Uh, Tweety is Velma. I mean, they, they got the whole thing. And then they have a, a even bigger one where it's Bugs driving the Mystery Ink Band. That's super cool. And Bugs is obviously Fred, uh, the leader of the gang. So I, I just think this is really cool and really special. And so I was uh, doing a giveaway on the social medias. Um, that's This means podcast over on Instagram and on Twitter. And the winner is Tiffany V. Ramos, uh, she was the one that answered the question correctly. What year was Taz introduced into the Looney Tunes? Uh, the answer was 1954. And she put that down and she tagged three people and she won. So congratulations, Tiffany. And I will be reaching out to you uh, to get you that Funko figure. Um, Michael, have you seen those, by the way? I saw the Velma one and I saw okay. the Taz one because you, po- you posted that one. And I've seen... Uh, because Bowser shares like 87 things a day on his Instagram, so I saw like, a, pro- <laughs> a promo image of this of the Looney Tunes gang in the Mystery Machine, like like some new yeah. art that was drawn, and yeah. so yeah, really cool art, and I I love the mashups and uh, Eric Bowser, also a friend of the podcast, yeah. uh, it should be coming back this year, but also uh, he was telling me that they might be doing uh some special like more special things with that. Uh, I don't want to, I don't want to tease the, tease the pool too much, but uh, yeah, I, I'm really excited. He always says the inside dope when it comes always. to we'll find, We would always find out stuff first. It's like, how did you find out Bowser? Bowser, <laughs> Bowser posted it or Bowser shared it on his Instagram. Oh, like he, he puts out stuff before the press releases do. He's, he's so on top of that stuff. He's great. <laughs> He is great. Um, but back to you, sir. We're going to we're going to dive deep into your career. Uh, so the one of the big tentpole animated projects that you worked on, I, I would say tentpole in, in a broader sense as a, uh, a, you know, an animated show that got a lot of acclaim early on. Uh, that was in 2014 when you worked on BoJack Horseman. Yeah. Um, what was that process like? Um, BoJack, that was my first project when I moved out to LA. I used to live in New York and then I I moved out to LA and my first, I literally just put my bags down. I was, I moved in with some friends in an apartment in Burbank and I get a message from Mike Hollingsworth, who I met the previous year at a, um, an animation, it was animation block party, which was like an animation event, um, uh, screenings and stuff in New York and Brooklyn. And he remembered me and he, we were friends on Facebook. And at one point he just reached out because he was following me on Facebook and stuff. And he goes, Hey Mike, I'm working on this pilot. It's about a depressed horse. I think you'd be perfect for it. Uh, would you want to, do you want to help out on it? I said, Yo, yeah. And that, in my mind, I'm like, I need the job. Yeah. And he's like, can you storyboard? And I was like, can I storyboard? And I'm like, can I, 
in my mind. I'm like, can I storyboard? Because I didn't, I never boarded. I kind of boarded a little bit on my thesis film in college, but I never okay. did it professionally. I just animated. So I'm like, oh yeah, I could do it. I just faked it. I just said, oh, I could probably board. Yeah, sure. What are you boarding in? Flash? Oh, I have yeah, Flash. I could do that. And so I boarded, I was boarding with a few other people on the pilot. So we came okay. in on the pilot and then I animated a bunch on the pilot and then we were waiting. I worked on another show at Shadow Machine um, uh, while it was getting like shopped around and Netflix picked it up and it was the first original animated show for streaming. And we didn't realize how much it would set the stage for everything coming after it. And uh, it's a great show. You know, the writing was fantastic. It's funny. I actually just last year, because I never finished the series, I don't have a lot of time. I don't really watch a lot of the stuff I work on. So <laughs> um, I finally got around because I have to, you, that show is for a lot of, for people who don't know, Bojack is a very, sometimes it gets very dark and it gets very sad and you have to be in a very, nothing, nothing makes you feel um, out of place in LA, like watching a character having depression in LA. So like, <laughs> it was like, you have to be, I'd had to be in a really specific mood to watch it, but I finally finished the series last year. I finally watched the end of the series because I only, uh, I worked on the first season. I worked on the pilot in the first season and then I left to go work on uh, new Looney Tunes after that. But yeah. um, I didn't, I, but I watched up to like season three and I did the last couple seasons and I finally caught up with it, but it's a great, it was a great show. It was a great kind of like trial by fire, learning the the process and proving myself and kind of getting uh, a leg up in terms of the world of boarding. And then I fell in, I kind of fell in love with boarding because of that. Cause I'm like, Oh, it's like animating, but I don't have to in between and, and, and everything. <laughs> it was kind of fun. So that was Bojack. Awesome. So yeah, uh, you, you brought up your first introduction into the, the greater Looney verse as we're calling it. And so what was it like working on Wabbit uh, initially called Wabbit and then changed into new Looney Tunes? Um, before Looney Tunes cartoons and the, the retro vibes came up, this was a more abstract look at Warner Brother or look at the Warner Brothers characters in the forest uh, with other foresty creatures that weren't exactly Elmer Fudd and Porky Pig, but you know they came in later. Right. Uh, like <laughs> this was a major difference from everything that we knew as Looney Tunes existed up until that point. So, did you have a, a big say or? how things like turned out in that, in that respect? Well, we all, you know, we all were involved and there was a, the, the show was sort of like a, almost like a weird, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I can't say that it directly affected it, but it was one of those Wabbit and new Looney Tunes walks. So Looney Tunes cartoons could run yeah. or like, it's one of those kind of feelings where, cause before that was the Looney Tunes show, which was sort of the sitcom uh, right. show. And I worked, um, Jessica Barutsky was, on, was the designer on that, uh, Looney Tunes show, and she was initially the designer on Wabbit. So it was great working with Jess early on, and they were going with more of a, originally kind of Jess's design sets came in, and then it kind of got honed into more of a graphic sensibility with sort of almost rubber hose limbs in a way, and yeah. um, they it, it was slapstick, you know, it was aiming more towards five and a half minute slapstick, kind of going closer to the roots of the character, but with some modern twists. And um, uh, the crew, I mean, throughout the whole series, first season all the way to the, the, the third season, we just, we would go in and laugh every day. It made me fall in love with, with pitching, pitching because we'd actively, you know, pitch the cartoons. And yeah, on that oh, wow. show, on that show, what we do is we'd go in every day and we would 
or uh, every, you know, twice a week, usually a Monday and a Wednesday. And we'd go in and they'd be like, okay, we're doing an episode with Bugs. And he had a little squirrel character named Squeaks and they're facing, uh, you know, this knight character and they have to, and it's with a dragon. And so they could be like, okay. And then we'd sit in the room, you know, we'd get, uh, you know, donuts and coffee or danishes or whatever. And we'd sit there from like first thing in the morning. We get there at like 9 a.m. and we'd sit there with post-its and we would have like a rough outline, but would each take like what we call like a beat or a bullet uh, point of the episode because there were five and a half minute episodes each. And we'd sit there with post-its and just board out the show and put it all up on the wall, kind of the old fashioned way. Oh, and our, our he later became like our full producer, but he was our story editor at the time. Uh, it was a fellow named, uh, he's great, uh, Matt Craig. He was sort of our grand poobah and he wanted to kind of, be like, you got to do it like the old guys did it. So let's put, let's let's have a whole bunch of push pins and stick them in the wall. And he'd write all the dialogue. And from, you know, eight in the morning until three in the afternoon, we'd be putting stuff together. And then we'd all go into the room and Matt would live pitch with, he'd have the pointer stick and be like, so Bugs comes out of his hole and he goes, what's going on? And this character goes, I want, and he would go through the whole you know, the, the whole cartoon with all the sound effects, he would do all the Foley with his mouth and it was so <laughs> fun this. and I, it was inspiring. So that, that's now that's my favorite thing when I board is pitching because I learned from, I learned from Matt and we had a really great team and we'd go in and the camaraderie on that show was so wonderful. We'd laugh every day. There were some things like compared to Looney Tunes cartoons, there were some provisos and limitations. Like the show was Y7. So there was okay. a lot of stuff that we couldn't do. We couldn't have like a character go, that guy's screwy. You know, we couldn't, there was certain word verbiage or wordage or certain things we couldn't do. A lot of the the violence had to be toned down because it was for kids. It was aimed specifically at Y7. Mm-hmm. And, um, but because of those limitations, we had to find creative ways to work around those limitations. So I like, think it just know, made the show better. Right. So like, for example, like, you we do it we do an episode with Yosemite Sam, say, driving a car and he's chasing bugs down in this car, this truck, and we get a note saying, Oh, we need a seatbelt. And it's like, Well, how are we gonna do oh, because he was originally he was supposed to get crashed and get flung out the windshield and get hurt or something. And it's like, Oh, you can't do that. It's like, Well, I know. He gets in the thing, and then instead of one seatbelt, bug straps him in with like seventeen seatbelts, and now he can't drive the car. And he <laughs> crashes into a tree and it blows up. And they're like, that's fine. It's not imitatable behavior. As long as he's wearing a seatbelt, it's fine. So it's like, okay. So we find <laughs> creative ways um, to deal with like certain standards and practices notes or like, and we try to pair characters together. And it was the first time we also did Crazy Daffy. I did at the end of the first season, uh, we did all the bugs, We all because it was a bug-centric show. And then at the end, we didn't know if we were going to get another season or not. So Matt and the guys were like, if we if we are going to, because we they, we snuck in, we started bringing other characters like Elmer right. and and other characters were kind of slowly trickling in. But he's like, if we're gonna do, we got to do one with Daffy because we already had Porky in there and we had a kind of a, a interesting kind of planes, trains, and automobiles kind of uh, dynamic between Porky and and Bugs, like Porky being the John Porky being the John Candy oh, character and Bugs being the Steve Martin kind of character, kind of. Porky's patient and Bugs isn't because he's a, you know, he's a, you know, like, stuttering, you know, like, you know, finish up. And then he would, you know, Bugs would always, a lot of times be the loser on that show. Yeah. And at the end they were like, well, we got to do at least one Daffy. And they said, Mike, do you want to do the last one? Daffy, Porky Daffy. And I said, can it be crazy Daffy? Can we go back to the woohooing crazy Daffy? 
and they said, if you could write it, sure. Yeah. So we wrote an episode and it was called, I believe, I think it was like Porky's amazing Porky's duck livery service or something like that. And it was, he has to deliver, Porky has to deliver a duck to a pond and it happens to be Daffy. And it was uh, D. Bradley Baker as Daffy because he was Daffy in Space Jam. He was. And yes. him and Bob. And then Sam Register saw it and uh, he really loved that last cartoon. So when we did the next season, they were like, let's do more Porky Daffy's. And uh, hearing Bob and, and D go back and forth and as Porky and Daffy and doing a lot of more zanier, crazy Daffy, that was fun. That was really a That's blast. Cool. I'm going to go back and look that up. Uh, I, I want to revisit that now that you've given some backstory to it. But I love that approach of taking the the classic, you know, uh, pen and notepad to the wall and having it play out in front of everybody. And you go through and you you go through the beats. Yeah. Um, I, I just I love that aspect of the the animation process, but the storytelling process behind it. Right. These, these shows and we'd all be in the room together so we'd bounce ideas off. what if you know what if bugs did this oh and then that could escalate and lead to this and we would literally yeah. bounce off. and then also we kind of figured out because we had to work on these tiny little post-it notes these little things we learned how to kind of like do the broad strokes we would we would um you know almost pre-board the cartoon and we'd have to work with kind of figure out a shorthand for the characters yeah. and the backgrounds and everything so it learned it made us not get too focus too heavily on the individual drawings when we're bored. Just get the broad strokes down, get the action down, do some fun posing, get them down. And that was a blast. It was hard, but it was a blast. Amazing. So, so slight tangent from, uh, you know, the, the animating of the Warner brothers, uh, lexicon to a little bit more uh broader sense because you have a writing credit on new Looney tunes yeah. as well as the Tom and Jerry shorts. Yeah. Uh, and I loved those, by the way, and I wish we got more of those from that talented pool of artists that were working on Looney Tunes cartoons uh, two years ago. Um, but can you talk a bit about working on Tom and Jerry? That yeah, that was fantastic. We all we were told because it was right in the it was like right smack in the middle of our production. Uh, we were uh, Pete came in and says, "Hey, you know, it's Tom and Jerry's uh, 80th birthday, you know, next year." and yeah. We were asked if we want to do some Tom and Jerry. So, and we were like, yeah. So we all sat in a room and we pitched ideas. And one of the things that was mentioned is that uh, we'll do a few Tom and Jerry's, but the only, the only stipulation was that one of them had to take place in Japan because Japan, Japan loves Tom and Jerry. I, I okay. was, I was actually in Japan um, in 2019, right before COVID, uh, but I went because I went to Annecy because we went to Annecy to promote mm -hmm. the Looney Tunes. And then like right before that, though, I was in Japan and Tom and Jerry was everywhere. They love Japan. Uh, they love Tom and Jerry in Japan. Wow. So great. it's like, oh, and then during these brainstorming sessions, we all work together and someone says, well, what about a, you know, it's Japan sushi restaurant. And yes. that was one. And my buddy, Andrew Dickman, uh, boarded that cartoon and wrote it. And it was absolutely fantastic. And then I sort of, uh, one of us, or I, I don't remember who, but mentioned, well, what's something that Tom and Jerry hasn't done? Because there's so many, there's been so many incarnations of Tom and Jerry. And I said, right. what about a cat tree? That's something that most people who have cats, they have cat trees. And what if Tom built a really extravagant one and Jerry kind of gets into the mix? And so that was mine. And I co-boarded that one with another one of our Looney Tunes co-boarders, uh, uh, storyboard artist uh, Ryan Katam, 
So I took the first third and the last third, and he took the middle. And we boarded um, in the classic style of Tom and Jerry. We were aiming for like between like 1942 and 1946, kind of in that sweet spot of like peak Tom and Jerry. Yeah. Um, I would say you nailed it. I mean, those are some fantastic cartoons, and I love revisiting them. But I wish there were more. Oh, we only have two. Me too. I mean, we had such a blast. We had such an absolute blast making those. And, you know, you know, and then also it was great seeing them cut together and them actually putting the old Bill Hanna screams in there yes. and uh, some of the old sound effects. And um, I mean, the slapstick just leaps off as as modern, but it, it's a modern throwback, you know, like right. it, it, it's fresh, but also it's familiar. Like, that's what works about it. Yeah. So this and the thing is, even when we were making it, we were like, which Tom and Jerry are we using? Because I remember yeah. Alex was even like, let's go full like puss gets the boot tom and jerry when it's like <laughs> jasper and jinx uh yes. tom and jerry where they're like they're constantly like fuzzy like you could see every mm-hmm. every like stray hair scraggly hair on tom and then it's like well i boarded it sort of in that sweet spot of like 45 46 where they you know you did and then when it went to design because we had jim soper and dan haskett and others designing kind of taking our board drawings they kind of found sort of it's just right after that jasper jinx era so it's like around 41 42 so it's still the they're doing their classic gags but jerry is a little bit more um uh he's he's a little more like a mouse he looks kind of like his earlier mousier kind of look that he doesn't look like cute giant baby head jerry yet and uh that was um but it was fun because those characters are actually really deceivingly hard to draw as much as like the Looney Tunes and Tom and Jerry kind of coexisted in the same kind of golden age period. And, um, you know, there were some animators who go, but some animators who worked on Tom and Jerry who worked on Looney Tunes or vice versa. Um, they're very different cartoons. They're, you know, the timing is much more specific in, in Tom and Jerry's. The, the, the style of humor is a little bit different. And, um, but having the experience with the Looney Tunes shorts, we knew that we just had to keep, because the whole goal with the Looney Tunes shorts too was just to keep the spirit of those characters alive and how you know them. Which I think the team did a fantastic job with. Thank you. And everybody worked so hard on all the shorts, including the Tom and Jerry's. So like, it was great just being able to be like, okay, what would Tom do? What would he not do? What would Jerry do or not do? Um, and just sort of channeling that classic energy. I even put a couple little nods to um, um, some of the animators um, when I boarded it. I think the, the crate that uh, Tom is unpacking all this stuff. And I put Spence's, so Irv Spence, the animator, who did some of the great takes, some of the best early uh, Tom and Jerry takes where his eyes are really bugging out and some really graphic expressions and stuff. He was fantastic. Oh, I um, love that. You know, even certain things. There's certain ways they would draw characters running off screen or zipping here and there, and which was very tonally, not even tonally, but just stylistically different than the Looney Tunes. So it was like having to learn a, 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 like almost like a detour from Looney Tunes. It was a slightly different school of drawing and thought about how those cartoons are made versus the Looney Tunes. So it yeah. was a good little, almost a, a, not a break because we're still working very hard, but it was definitely a, a fun little side uh, side quest uh, in classic golden age cartoon before we got back yeah. full force up back on the Looney Tunes again. 
not only was the coloring different, the framing was different because you had human characters that you didn't get to see all of. Like you only saw like their kneecaps. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then down. So like the framing for Tom and Jerry was drastically different than anything going on in Looney Tunes as well. The gags happen around the sushi and everything going on with like the the, me- the mechanisms that make those shorts so fun to watch. I thought you did a really good job of bringing that back yeah and that's and that's all on thank you and that's all on you know for that first cartoon that sushi one that was all andrew i mean the design team as well but andrew uh, you know boarding on these shows we're creating essentially skeletons and that uh for what the cartoons are going to be and andrew came up with a lot of those gags and um boarded the whole thing and then of course it gets fanned out and then everybody touches it the design team the uh animators uh we had some in-house animators too like uh, folks like Bill Waldman, who is absolutely brilliant. He did some of the best stuff on the show and those in those Tom and Jerry, specifically the sushi one. He did some really great stuff with those characters like um, Tom getting his foot stomped on by the sushi chef and yeah. Jerry sneaking and Tom uh, pretending to be the little lucky cat with the waving paw. That's all. Right, that's yeah. all Bill. And like we'd actually walk by his desk and he would actually be animating on paper. And he would be flipping drawings. Wow. And I remember one day I was just watching him and he was just <laughs> um, drawing Tom's as whiskers because they kind of, in the old cartoons, they would almost cross. They, would, they wouldn't they would like flare out like Bugs's do. They would almost like curl into each other and almost make like, not like a mustache, but there was there's some times where Tom has like this weird intertwined whisker thing. And he was just going through and drawing in these really beautiful, precise whiskers on Tom and making sure that they flowed when he jumped up in the air and staggered when he when he screamed and stuff and it was it's like watching magic happen especially because like people like and on the shorts we had a lot of classic you know uh, you know these guys who worked for they worked for bluth or they worked on the early disney stuff like chris wall chris wall was the lead on lefou who was the Mm -hmm. like the lackey to gaston and beauty and the beast and he was yeah he was animating for us on the series and we had uh Skip Jones, who worked, he did some of the best stuff in, on the Bluth films. Like he animated a good chunk of the the Dom DeLuise cat, Tiger, in American Tale. And so like you would go by their desk and we'd talk and we'd ask them old stories of what was it like working on this movie. And you would get to see them bring their 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 skills, their years of, of experience and skills back into bringing these characters back from Tom and Jerry and the Looney Tunes and so on. And it was brilliant. It was just brilliant to be able to go in every day. And everybody on the show was so talented. So like you go into the, the background department, you know, we had Aaron Spurgeon was our art director and you would see these like, Oh, for this cartoon, we're going to, we're going to make the backgrounds more in the vein of um, like the Freeling, you know, the Freeling uh, cartoons yeah. like um, Paul Julian. And then like, you would see like, Oh, you know, this cartoon's taking place at night. So the color schemes of the characters are going to be different from short to short. So like, you know, some, it's some coyotes that, you know, they take place earlier in the day or later in the day. So coyote and Roadrunner are going to be colored based on the time of the day. And they would think about all that stuff. So when you'd see from the writing to the boards, all the way through from design, animation, uh, backgrounds, everything, it was just like so many talented hands coming together and making something really spectacular. Like we would see stuff come back. And we go on the server. I was like a little pack rat. I'd, every morning I'd look for inspiration <laughs> on the servers and I would see like, oh, Jim Sober did designs for this cartoon and whoa, those are great. Or, oh man, look at these layouts for 
so-and-so's cartoon or, oh man, we have some animation coming back from so-and-so. Let's see the pencil tests. And we would get so uh, fueled just by seeing really amazing stuff by all I the bet. people on our show that we just, I, I, I would be fueled just to go back to my desk and be like, I'm going to work my, work my butt off just to make sure that keep the standard of quality up because everybody's working so hard. So see listeners, traditional animation is not dead. It is just behind the scenes of these wonderful shorts that we're continuing to get. Cause we even have more Looney Tunes cartoons coming our way. They just haven't been released yet. Yeah. But as soon as they are, you bet we're going to be watching them and then talking about them. Uh, but going back to your, your filmography, you have worked on uh, cat burglar and cuphead most recently. And those also have, retro throwback feels cat burglar with tex avery and cuphead with just you know this retro design based on a game that was inspired by 1920s uh animation so like these influences that you're pulling from they have grounds and bearings in the projects that you are getting to work on how how great is that like (laughs) it's wonderful because i love i grew up with you know all that stuff watching them on tv or having them on tape so like I'm a little typecast these days because everyone knows me as the cartoony guy because I work strictly on it sounds like I look work strictly on golden age looking stuff, but um, it's fun because I I really genuinely care about learning where we came from and and going back to look at where we came from, and we've come a long way and seeing like, you know, uh, Tex Avery versus something like Cuphead are two. Um, very different styles, you know, they come from a, a, a different, you know, this, a similar period, you know, only a few years off, a decade off from each other, but um, they're still stylistically different, even down to the timing of the cartoons are very different. So like, wow. it's, I love going back and doing research and studying the history and being like, where did this come from? And the fact that the folks at Studio MDH, when we worked on the show, you know, uh, there was communication with Studio MDHR who made the game and we got to see them working on the game while we were the DLC for the game while we were making the show. And oh, wow. um, I didn't know it went that far it, back. It was, it's incredible. I mean, it took a while because like you look at the animation of the DLC and it's like every frame is hand drawn and then hand inked and then scanned and colored. And then the backgrounds are watercolor backgrounds and everything. And, you know, we had to make, you know, I don't know how many shorts for or episodes for Cuphead, but in the same amount of time, you know, the pipeline is very different from how they made the game. But um, it they they set a really high bar, and we had a, again, like Looney Tunes, um, we had a very amazingly skilled, talented group of people. Um, Andrea yeah. Fernandez, who did the art direction on um, on Cuphead, you know, they really nailed that. Like, like if you look at the old you know, color classic, uh, Fleischer cartoons, um, really capturing that essence of the watercolor and, um, the folks at lighthouse, the animation studio, they did a fantastic job and everybody just really locked into that style and knew like the kind of gags that would have, they would have done in like 1935 and channeling a little bit of that, but also bringing them up to, you know, modern sensibilities in terms of comedy and timing and things like that. So there's a little bit of, It's, it's never going to look exactly, you know, like, um, you know, with the time and the, and the budget and the, and the, uh, yeah, the schedule that, you know, that a production normally has, you, you know, but you, they, we did something really, really 
genuinely uh, fantastic. And we really wanted to harken back and, and pay homage to these cartoons that we loved and grew up with. And it feels respectful. It feels like an homage that is worth revisiting. And I hope that people that watched it actually went back and watched those old Fleischer cartoons and, you know, those those really classic Mickey, like Walt Disney shorts that came out in that era. Yeah. And and even Oswald cartoons. Like, I, I know he's getting a little bit of a resurgence because he had a new short come on YouTube and, and you know, celebrating the year of the rabbit over there as well. It's, it's just really great to see these classics get their get their shine get yeah. their time in the in the day and also that there's know? folks there's a you know the, the, if you look at the folks the uh um there's a restoration team uh yeah. now with the fleischers and you're seeing these beautiful restorations of actually taking the negatives and scanning them and and in, up in hd and you get to see these beautiful prints because i'm used to seeing washed out old you know public domain vhs tape prints of these cartoons so to see them in these vibrant beautiful colors and um Man, it would be so handy when we were on Cuphead. But you know, we did uh, an amazing. Everybody did such an amazing job, um, and I'm glad that both between that the, the, the sort of the what's old is new is sort of in vogue again between like the Mickey shorts and Cuphead and uh, the Looney Tune shorts that like it's fun to be able to go back and 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 revisit you know where we came from and and kind of uh, harken back to that golden age stuff it's really uh, a blast. It's like the timing for me was perfect because I love that stuff. So to me to work on a bunch of these different projects has been just an absolute blast to kind of channel that energy that I loved. Yeah. I, I can't imagine the level of like honor it is to get to like sit down and being asked to draw these characters. Like, is there a specific character that you got to draw while working on any of these shows that, that you loved drawing and you are like, Oh, I just, you know, I want to make this character have his own his own show if one day or or you know revisit him when in a, a day in the future and and uh just get reinvigorated by the the work that came before but also making him modern was it was there a character like that there was a few i mean like for me i remember being a little kid and watching roadrunner and coyote with my grandfather and i'm thank i'm happy to say that my grandfather is still alive and i was able to show him it's like remember all those years ago when we were we watched we used to watch Roadrunner and Coyote and I got to show him my Roadrunner and Coyote cartoons and he laughed. I mean he's hard of hearing and hard of sight now, but he got to be able to see it and laugh and he liked it a lot and so that felt great. So it was great being able to kind of capture that. Um, I I really do love those characters, the like Roadrunner and Coyote, specifically Coyote, and I got to at least I wish I did more. I didn't get to do. I only got to do two shorts with Coyote and Roadrunner, but I wish I was able to do more, but it was so, I loved, and I got to do it in a way I got to do the Ralph and Sam sheepdog and Ralph Wolf is sort of like a, a semi coyote. Yeah. So I got to do it. Technically, I guess I got to do a little bit more in the vein of coyote with, uh, with Ralph Wolf. But uh, the big one for me was Beaky. I really, I always loved Beaky. And you got to Beaky voice Buzzard Beaky. Was, <laughs> yeah, I mean, Beaky Buzzer was always my favorite Looney Tunes character. Oh, really? And uh, I love them. So the fact that I got to not only draw him, but then eventually get to do his voice for a little while. Yeah, you got to step into Kent Rogers' shoes for a minute. Yeah, and I actually, when I, when I, when I pitched and I was thinking about, um, even just before, I didn't even know I was going to be the voice yet. 
um, when I was, because I, I asked Pete, because Pete was telling me early on, you know, when we're doing the show, we're going to go back. And we had um, Jim Soper did these, um, like these mock-up title cards. And one of them was of like the gremlin, the bugs and the gremlin yeah. with the car. And it was like, oh, you're really going back? I was like, yeah, we're going full Clampet. We're going to go back to Clampet. And I said, are you going to do Beaky? And he goes, oh, yeah, of course we're going to do Beaky. And I'm like, oh, I love Beaky. If you get, if we ever do a Beaky, I'd love to board a Beaky. If you, if you trust me enough, because <laughs> at the time I, I was just starting on my first short when I got onto the show. And I said, if, if there's an opportunity to do a Beaky, I'd love to be able to draw Beaky. And he goes, absolutely, dude. Totally. Amazing. And I got to do, I think Beaky, the Beaky Buzzard School was my third cartoon. Okay. And he's like, we're doing Beaky. Nice. And I said, cool. And I got to write and channel, you know, look at the old, you know, Bugs Bunny gets the Boyd and, um, the bashful buzzard and look at those old shorts and um kind of channel that energy there and the funny thing is like everybody uh when we're boarding and you know all the, all the boarders had to pitch too when we were done we'd go into the room we'd go into this conference room and we'd have our boards up on the computer screen on this big tv and we'd pitch the cartoons live to the crew to gauge reactions and see if the cartoons oh, work nice. and everything and so like everybody boards or uh Everybody, of course, boards differently. Everyone has a very unique voice when they board and when they draw and what have you. But everybody pitches differently. And I'm always overcompensating for everything. So, like, when I'm pitching, I'm always doing the voice. I'm always doing, you know, sound effects with my mouth. Again, going back to, like, Matt sure. Craig when I was on uh, uh, New Looney Tunes and Wabbit. Just channeling that energy and keeping the characters, you know. You know, if the, the fact that what makes Bugs' dialogue funny is because he has that New York accent, you know, he's Brooklyn Bronx Bugs kind of thing. Yeah. So like I knew there's certain voids he would say and, and things he would do. And the delivery is what helps sell the joke. Right. So, and I was totally overcompensating, <laughs> but with Beaky, I actually went back and looked at not only just the cartoon, the Kent Rogers, you know, voice, yeah. not even just the voice match, but just like the fact that it came from Edgar Bergen and Mortimer Snurd which is what the character was based off. It was the puppet Mortimer Snurd. And if anybody, I don't know, most people probably have no idea who Mortimer Snurd or Edgar Bergen or Charlie McCarthy are, but if anybody who likes cartoons has ever seen um, uh, Fun and Fancy Free, the Disney movie with Mickey and the Beanstalk, yes. mm -hmm. there, there's, that always, there's that weird scene where Jiminy Cricket goes over to uh, Luana Patton, this little girl, she was a, a child actress's house, and he's throwing her like a birthday party, and it's like, this guy with these two puppets, these ventriloquist dummies. And it's like, what the hell is going on? This is weird. <laughs> As a kid, I was even like, what is this? But I knew that like, there's something about how he delivered Mortimer Snurd's lines. Because he says things like, oh, no, no, if you're going to kill the cow, I don't want to hear the rest of the story. And he would get like, oh, yeah. just like, he's an old hick, you know, he's, this is like an old kind of country bumpkin. Right. So I'd look at old, I tried to find as much footage of Edgar Bergen, performing Mortimer Snurd as possible and just to kind of get the cadences right and figure out like what's word what are words that Beaky what would he say and what would he not say he wouldn't use multi-syllabic words he's very simple yeah and then when I went in and pitched the cartoon um you know I did all the voice I did bugs talking to Beaky and and uh you know back and forths and it got laughs you know because I'm always doing like you know what's going you know you know um you know, what are you doing, Doc? Oh, I'm looking for a rabbit. Oh, a rabbit. What are you, you know, what are you going to do with that rabbit? Oh, I can't tell you. No, 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 no. And I would just do it. And there's actually uh, footage of me uh, pitching. Oh, it's great. 
that we showed that we showed at Annecy years ago. But um, I would and it, it sold it, you know, like I guess people really liked, you know, Pete and Alex really liked the delivery. And it's like you sound like Beaky. You sound dumb and stupid and which is perfect for Beaky. <laughs> Do you want to play Beaky? What a compliment. And I was I was like I yeah, I know. It's it's a wonderful compliment when working with cartoons. But I, I said, Well, I wanna be earnest with it. And I don't I don't wanna just don't just give me the, the role, you know, I I wanna audition. So I actually auditioned. I actually they had a, a set of uh, lines and I said them and they auditioned a bunch of people and Pete and Alex were like, Well, you like yours, you know. We really like how you did you figured out that the laugh isn't uh, like a, it's not an impediment. It's he's, he's actually giddy. It's not him going, nope, 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 nope. It's not a, it's not a, like a tick. It's not like a stutter or like Porky stutter or anything. It's just, he's just so he's tickled, like almost like, Oh, oh, and he's just like, it's not just like a, like a, it's not a repetitive or a clinical thing. Yeah. It's very nuanced. So they, and I, yeah, you captured it for sure. He's, he's just bashful. Like everything yeah. tickles him. So like, that's part of it is that he, he, uh, getting down to his character, even though this he's, he's, he is in many ways, a very one dimensional character. You know, that's why they really didn't use him past the forties, but, um, it was fun to just, we don't really, you don't have a lot of dumb bashful characters anymore in cartoons. So it's fun to kind of bring him kind of back. And, uh, thankfully I had, um, both Bob Bergen, and Eric Bowser were super supportive. That's great. Um, Bob gave me some great direction. I took a, I took a, um, his voice over class, and he's a good friend. And um, I was in the for the first Beaky cartoon. I was in the booth with um, Bowser, and we got hit him doing bugs against me doing Beaky. It was my first time really in a professional voiceover booth. Wow. And and he gave me some tips, and he did like you know how far you need to be from the microphone. And I said, what? And he went like, he did like a cool, like the rad, like you can't really see because there's no video, but you stick your hand out and put your pinky and your thumb out and you kind of just go, yeah, and like, like rock yeah, exactly. on. Yeah, rock and it's on. like, that's, and he said, that's the length. If you put the, your thumb to your nose and you stick your pinky out, that's how far you should be from the mic. Wow, okay. And I was like, oh, okay. And he's like, oh, if you're going to pop your peas, do the pencil trick. And I said, what's the pencil trick? It's like, well, if you're going to pop your peas, if you do it in the mic, it's going to get, you're going to get feedback. But if you put your pencil right between your lips and if you make a puh noise the the force of air gets diverted away from the mic to either side so like because beaky smacks his lips and goes oh, 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 and like does a lot of little you know uh over accentuates certain uh, syllables consonants yeah, yeah, yeah. and stuff and syllables yeah. so like oh that helps a lot and he was really he and also he just helped keep me at ease like don't worry we're having fun here just treat it like play and which was really the whole show in many ways both from boarding and voicing is that we just treated it like play. Like they put us in a sandbox with a bunch of Looney Tunes figures and we got to play. That's what it really felt like that. for the whole run of the series. You That's know? what it feels like when you watch it too. <laughs> it just feels like these guys are having fun with this. And uh, yeah, you know, the, the talent behind the mic, the talent behind the drawings, the, the pencils, like everybody is just oozing with talent, oozing with excitement for getting these characters back out there in this retro style and that that's just something I really appreciated and bringing it back into, you know, the, the topic of hex appeal, Alex Kerwan, one of the main producers on this show was really adamant about bringing witch hazel back. Did you work alongside Alex to prepare for this undertaking of, of this classic character? Yeah. 
Can, can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, it was sort of his baby in a way. Like he knew that this was something that he really wanted to do. He wanted to do a Witch Hazel cartoon and it was his idea to do a cartoon specifically in the style, in the, in the vein of Ronald Searle. And for those that don't know, Ronald Searle yeah. was a, a British illustrator, uh, very famous. He did. Uh, he was famous for doing a, a series of illustrations of these kind of these rambunctious, uh, nasty little girls called the St. Trinian's Girls. And but he did a lot of great, you know, illustrations. He lived to be in his nineties, and he was illustrating since the nineteen forties. Wow! Uh, in fact, he, in fact, he illustrated while he was in a POW camp during World War II. He was a really interesting British illustrator. And um, uh, if you watch, um, if you look at uh, Chuck Jones's stuff going into the fifties, he started getting really inspired by people like Picasso and and Ronald Searle. So if you look at his designs for a lot of his human characters come like late fifties. If you look at the cartoon deduce, you say, yes, the one where Daffy Daffy is, is uh, uh, door, doorlock Holmes <laughs> with, with, uh, with, with Porky. A lot of the human characters are like his interpretations of like, if you look at a Ronald Searle illustration and put it side by side with some of the characters and in deduce, uh, you say, or in um, some of the later port, uh, some of his later cartoons, uh, sort of how he drew lips and how he drew eyes and they were small and kind of squinty and slanted and he would draw these very unique head shapes and almost like uh, not even blocky but just sort of weirdly shaped heads and stuff but it was like he was inspired by Ronald Searle so it was fun to be like well let's which Hazel's design is sort of influenced indirectly by Ronald Searle so wouldn't it be fun to kind of go back to the source yeah to what Chuck, the, who, what Chuck Jones was inspired by, and let's do something in the vein of Ronald Searle, and that was all Alex's, really his his doing. It was really his, um, he spearheaded that whole thing, and he asked me, you know, when we did the board, he's like, I want to do it in this style. It's going to have kind of a weird. Some things are going to be inside of a line, and some things are going to be outside. Like her head does, is not going to have an outline. It's just going to be like a big green shape. And the lines are going to break and it's going to be very graphic. And I said, that's really cool. How the hell are we going to pull that off? <laughs> um, and, he, and when he asked, he told me even initially, he's like, you know, you don't have to draw it in the, in the Searle style. You know, we, you could draw it in your own and then we'll just have our designers, um, you know, and our designers were amazing. We had a, Stephen DiStefano did the final character designs on that short wow. and he did a great job. And um but I said, you know what, it's going to help sell it if I try to at least, you know, I like the challenge. And with any board, the thing I look for more is the the challenge of each episode or each project I go on to. What's, what am I going to learn? What's something, a new um, muscle that I'm going to work out here? And for that, I was like, if it's going to be in the Ronald Searle style, let me try and uh, capture that look or, or at least, you know, sell the idea so when other people see maybe the animatic they could be like oh okay we get it yeah and i alex gave me a lot of reference he gave me some really great reference of ronald searle some great pdfs and copies of books and i scanned through them over a weekend before i started and he did these wonderful drawings of witch hazel i think he's posted them on his instagram i think so but he did he did that he's he, he literally showed it to me he's like yeah i just did these last night <laughs> and i'm like you you bastard you're so good and alex is alex is an amazing he his his drawings were coveted we would be we would be in the boardroom uh at launches for cartoons and he would do these drawings uh either on posters or on paper with marker and 
we collect, I have a, I have like one or two of them here in, in my place, but there were people, we would do a drawing and people would snag them because his drawings were like effortlessly brilliant. He was so, he's so amazing. But don't cut yourself too uh, short. I feel like you also nailed that uh, Ronald Searle approach to Witch Hazel and the way that you do the line work for her hair, the hat, like the whole thing and and the way that her face ends up in that grotesque, like, you know, uh, skin peeling off and it, it doesn't have form. I, I, I think you nailed that. So, yeah. You know. <laughs> well, thank you. I, I, and of course we had, like I mentioned before, I channeling, knowing that Candy was going to do the voice that helped yeah. um, putting in a lot of, I put in a lot of, I looked at, of course, the old cartoons to one, you know, keep, try to understand the character's movements, how she would move and, uh, how she would, you know, gesticulate and things like that, but also just not to accidentally copy anything that was already done, try to go into new territory with her. Um, I even looked at um, the other Witch Hazel cartoon, the, the Donald one, the Trick or Treat. Oh, right. Yeah. And there's, Disney a, there's a lot original. of little, yeah, the Disney <laughs> one, the one that Chuck Jones is like, I want a witch. He's like, I want one. This witch is cool. And then he came up with his own. He um, kept the name. June for eight. He kept the name. <laughs> You know, it's, you know, Witch Hazel, it's a great pun because yeah. people, not most people, most people don't have Witch Hazel in their, in their medicine cabinets anymore, but it was a thing that people had and people knew the reference back then. Yes. But, um, anywho, the cat was, a, I originally named the cat Beezlebub <laughs> in the short because the cat didn't have a name, but, uh, Witch Hazel's broom in that Disney short had, it was Beezlebub. Oh, okay. And, uh, at one point she looks in a cauldron and goes repulsive and that's right out of, uh, trick or treat. I love that. Um, so the cat, but this... real quick, bringing up that character because it, it had its moment when it gets stuck in the bottle and then the bottle breaks and then its hair just like springs out. How hard was that to draw? <laughs> the funny thing is, the easiest characters to draw on that, the easiest character to draw on the whole series, I love drawing Coyote and Beaky and the other characters, but that spider, mm -hmm. the little spider, because yeah. I would just draw black. I would just, I, I had my, you know, my pen, you know, in, in Storyboard Pro, that was the program we bored our shorts in. I would just draw a big black blob and then erase where the eyes would be. And then I just add these spindly legs. And the cat, thankfully, there was one really great drawing of that cat yes. from the original cartoon. I just lifted that verbatim because it's such a brilliant design. And um, it's just a big black shape. With skinny so it legs just, and tail. With skinny little <laughs> legs and a flared out tail and these bright green yellowy eyes. And um, it was just literally you would just draw a big black shape and then just almost with an eraser, just carve out what I, what that wasn't going to be there. Cause how I draw, I kind of draw in a weird sculpture way where I just draw a big mass of like the shape of what the character is. And then I go in with an eraser and carve out a lot of the time, but for the witch hazel one specifically, because it had that Ronald Searle so, sort of line. And I asked Alex, Alex, uh, how do you draw? Because he figured out how to draw in that style because he was just actually using a dip pen, which is what um, Ronald Searle did with his illustrations. He used an old fountain dip pen. Wow. And I had to, I had to replicate it in store, uh, a program with vector brushes, you know. Yeah. And he, he he gave me some hokey, every line is a journey. And I'm like, <laughs> okay. So I brought that back and I, I literally, because I have, ever since I worked myself really hard on the first season of, of Wabbit and I had borderline heart failure. And I have a slightly shaky hand. Oh no. My hands, I can't, I can't like do like nice, like pinch, like my dad tried to teach me pinstriping when I was a teenager and I hated that, but like, sure. I couldn't do that now. 
but it helped a little bit with that Ronald Searle style <laughs> because my hands are a little shaky. And also the program, because it's vector-based tools, it's like it almost wants to make it perfect. So you get those little, the thick and thin kind of janky like ink line that's almost a little shaky. Right. It helped yeah. a lot. So like a lot of that um, translated really well. And I got to go over and think graphically like in terms of the silhouette. So like, you know, Witch Hazel's body is just a big, almost like a big, you know, bold geometric shape. And then like that little spider, I would just draw a ball and then just add the legs. And it was so fun to kind of think graphically and the, the background stuff, the stuff that Aaron Spurgeon and his team came up with, like I came up, I I didn't do a lot of like planning as far as the layouts goes. I knew that like, Oh, this is, this is her call. This is where a cauldron is. And there's this and that and basic ideas for layouts, but their team went absolutely, you know, they had a blast coming up with, all these great colors and figuring out spotlights of color. We just see a big shape, just take up the whole, it was a very great, like in terms of like, all the cartoons are unique and beautiful, but like they really got to go full, you know, fifties UPA graphic, just um, free form shapes and silhouetted uh, backgrounds and big blocks of color. And it was really a real tour de force for the art team on that short. And in that respect, it really stands out from the rest of the catalog. I, I got to say, like, it's yeah, it's so beautiful to look at. And I'm so proud of the final product and all the so work great. that went into it, especially also the anime. And I'm going to for all the shorts, but we had three animation studios, uh, Tonic, DNA, uh, Yowza and uh, Snipple. And uh, Yowza did the animation on that uh, Hex Appeal short. And they knocked it out of the park. They did such a beautiful job on that cartoon. Because I was like, how that... Because I saw, like, Steven Stefano's designs and seeing my boards cut together with the voice and everything, with Candy's voice, and still in my mind thinking, how the hell are they going to pull this off? <laughs> and I saw the final product, and I was just like, wow. That looks so spot on. They figured out a way to cheat. Like, certain things, like cheating... Um, because Witch Hazel is a very graphic character, so cheating like her mouth and um, her and getting those gnarly hands in there and her hair, the fact that her hair um, and the old cartoon was like it too that her, that her hair and her hat uh, there's no break in them, so it's just one big black shape of her hair bleeds right into the sh- into the hat the the silhouette. Yeah, and they did such a fantastic job. Uh, taking my my chicken scratch boards and interpreting them and making them actually really, really fantastic. They did a, a bang up job on that. Well, shout out to so. Yauza and all the work going on over there. I mean, yeah, this short is immaculate to look at. And um, while I still have you, I want to do a quick uh, crash, like fast round of questions uh, from sure. the Twitter handles and Twitter users uh, that follow the podcast. Uh, Luke Perkins wanted to know, uh, when boarding or writing some of these shorts, what specific classic Looney Tunes or Merry Melodies cartoons do you look for for inspiration? And I'm guessing that's um, based around like what character you're looking at. You'll go back to their originals. But are there any shorts that you just love revisiting for inspiration? Yeah, I mean, obviously on the Looney Tunes shorts, you know, the 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 benchmark, you know, we aimed for Clampett. Jones has been done, you know, forever. Yeah. So it was fun to kind of go into the Clampett thing, uh, you know, clamp it kind of style. But um, there's one really underrated director that I love, and I love all of his cartoons. They're so weird. Because he, Art Davis, kind mm-hmm. of inherited um, Clampett's 
kind of department. Right. So there was cartoons that Clampett started and his team started and then he left. And then Art Davis and his team took over for a few years. And then finally he went back into animating. Um, and then Rob McKimson eventually took over his unit later. But there's a wonderful period in the 40s where Art Davis is directing these really outlandishly just unique compared to all of his content. Like Fritz Freeling has a very distinct way of, of timing and writing and, and, and drawing his cartoons look and feel different yeah. than Jones that feels different than Clampett that feels different than McKimson. But no one ever really talks about those Art Davis cartoons. And I love that there's sort of like, it's sort of like a weird bridge between um, uh, the early kind of wacky Clampett stuff, but it's grounding it a little bit more, but the stop, the, the cartoons are still a little bit weirdly surreal and cerebral and, some of the gags are really like outlandish and like this one, I, I try getting, I try getting these characters into the show. Uh, there's one cartoon called Do Re Meow, which mm -hmm. is uh, an Art Davis with um, Heathcliff and Louie. Read to me what's on this pretty paper, Louie. Read to me what's on this pretty paper. Okay, let's have it. Last will and testament. I being of sound mind and... I leave one million dollars to my pet cat, Heathcliff. In the event of his disappearance, the money goes to my pet bird, Louie. Uh-huh. This dumb cat and this parrot that wants him dead to collect the insurance money. And I love that cartoon. It's a weird one because it's just a dumb, dopey cat and this, this angry parrot. Just a weird pairing, these one-off characters. And then there's other ones like the Stupor Salesman, which is a Daffy, a standalone Daffy with a with a, I guess a thug or a burglar in a house. He's trying to sell him something door to door. The cops will never find me here. Cops. Thanks for the lift, chum. Gosh, those state police are sure swell guys. That sure would have been a long walk with my flat feet. Uh, my dogs are killing me. Bye-bye, uh, Bluebeard. Like, he did so many yeah. of these very <laughs> surreal... There's one with Porky and a squirrel. I think it's called Porky Chops, where Porky's trying to t chop down a tree, and there's this, like, like slang-talking squirrel with this giant, bushy tail. It's like these, he came up with so many of these one off characters that just didn't go anywhere. And I guess technically, the, if there's any characters that really kind of grew out of his department, maybe the Goofy Gophers, because I think he took over. Clampett's unit as he was writing uh, the Goofy Gopher. He uh, did, The first yeah. Goofy Gopher short. Hey, look. Who am I making like? Who am I making like? Uh, what's up, Doc? <laughs> oh, my. That was clever, clever. Oh, my, 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 my. Very clever. Very, very, very. Mmm, this looks good. <laughs> Cucumbers. Say, mmm. And turnips. Well, potatoes. I love potatoes. Oh, I'm taking some of these, too. Delicious, isn't it? But have you tried the pumpkin today? Pumpkin? 
Why, no. Well, here, have some. So then you got to see a little bit of that with that, that like thespian, not, yeah, there was a thespian dog, which I think was a, a, a later McKimson one, mm -hmm. but he did the one with the ye this yellow dog that like, he's such a weird design. And <laughs> a lot of those characters that Art Davis's cartoons had were just surreal, like weird. They, they don't fit. They oddly don't fit in the realm of, of, uh, of Looney Tunes. They almost feel like they could have existed at like Lance, Walter Lance studio or, columbia or one of the other contemporary studios at the time it just it doesn't feel right but it stands out like a sore thumb amongst the others and they they're so unique and, and funny it does um, but at the same time it adds texture to it you know like you, right if you get tired of seeing bugs bunny which it, it happens <laughs> if you watch enough yeah. of it over and over and over again uh and then you have the goofy gophers macintosh show up it's it's a breath of fresh air to see you know these lesser art davis characters uh, yeah. the screen. And, and yeah, that's, that's what I love about it. It's, it's a texture thing. <laughs> and also proto versions of characters. Like there's like a proto uh, Pepper Le Pew. Oh, right. There's, yeah. He did a few Sylvester's where Sylvester is like a dumb lummoxy cat mm -hmm. where he's not, he's not quite like, you know, the, you know, uh, Chris Freeling was already doing Sylvester cartoons at that time, but you get like weird, like how each it's again, like how each director would interpret characters like Daffy or Bugs or, or, or any of the others. But then you see how Art Davis would treat Sylvester as just sort of like this dumb, dumb cat. I don't know. I just find it. Even how they drew him, he looks really like brain dead in those cartoons. And I just, I love those. How And also like you have these great animators like Bill Melendez and Emery Hawkins, who were these fantastic animators. Yeah. Animating. They, they were, you know, Bill, uh, Bill Melendez in particular working under Clampett doing some of the crazier stuff in the Clampett cartoons and then coming in on these Art Davis cartoons and really knocking it out of the park. Truly. Um, truly. The, the, I always, work. I always, I always would look at those for inspiration, especially for drawing Daffy. Yeah. Cause he always, uh, Emery Hawkins would always draw Daffy with these thousand mile stare eyes. And I love, I always tried to, it never quite worked out, but I'd always try to sneak a, a couple like where Daffy's eyes just wouldn't focus. They would just look <laughs> off into the, in, like they put a thousand yard stare. And uh, he wouldn't focus on anything, but um, yeah, those are great. So last question uh, from insane cartoonist, uh, which character from the Looneyverse, uh, as it's called, would, would you say is your favorite to draw? Um, of, of like the main staple of Looney Tunes characters, mine, I, I'd probably go with Coyote. Okay. I, there's something about Coyote. He's like, he's like silly putty. Like all that matters <laughs> was that his, his head, his cranium, yeah. His cranium is a solid shape. It's a, it's a hard skull. But everything else, his cheeks, his 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 muzzle, his his snout, his ears are just they were um it's like it's like yeah, like silly putty. You could draw them what you think it looks wrong, but it somehow looks right with him. Bugs is so hard to draw right, and Tweety is so hard to draw right, and Porky is so hard to draw right because they're so distinct and cute and there's you can't really break them yeah as characters but coyote you just get and i and i tried so hard i used to i screen grab like 1500 screen grabs from those old uh chuck jones uh cartoons just to not only study them but also just not copy any of them i didn't want to lift any specific expressions from uh any of those old cartoons when i would draw like takes on on coyote that's amazing. It would be great for you to talk at some point. I don't know. Have you ever spoke to Jim Soper? I haven't yet. Just J Jim, on social media. Yeah. Jim 
is fantastic because when he was designing the Looney Tunes characters, he he would put little nods to their first appearance or their earlier appearance in his designs. That's why Bugs has the yellow gloves. Right. That's why Sylvester has like kind of a kind of almost like a snake like body, how his neck connects into his head with the yellow eyes, and why Elmer has the little button nose and things like that. And with Coyote, he's a character that didn't exist. You know, Clampett never drew Coyote. Coyote was a late 40s character. Same with characters like Marvin and, and some of the others. So it's like, yeah. what would happen if Coyote and Roadrunner were designed in, say, 1940 under the Clampett unit? So it's like, not only is it, it, it's harkening back to Coyote's first appearance in Fast and Furious, but also there's a slight Clampettiness to his design in terms of how it's, you know, certain shapes and, and, and there's not a lot of angular stuff. Yeah. Um, but then also the thing that I find really funny is that if you look at Chuck Jones's earliest designs for Coyote and Roadrunner, like he did a, his proto designs, because, right. you know, Chuck Jones embodied Mark Twain. Mm-hmm. And there's a great description that he wrote. He did a book called uh, Roughing It. And there's a great description of the coyote that he wrote that said that it's just one of the things is that the coyote is a leave, living, breathing allegory of want. And he's a, and the fact that he's a pathetic creature. And there's something about how Jim drew coyote in the show that makes him look both. He looks like the Jones. He's, he still embodies the Jones style in a way of, of who coyote is and the proportions of things, okay. but there's that clampetiness to it, but they're still hearkening back to, this sort of pathetic description of what a coyote is by Mark Twain. So it's a combination of all this stuff. And then knowing that you could, can, you can't really break coyote. You could, you could beat him up in so many different ways. And it was fun just figuring out how to draw expressions on him and to make him look uh, really gnarly and really feral sometimes, but then also really, um, Kind of like a, like a like a pantom. He's a, I love pantomime characters and the yeah. fact that he only would speak through his body language. I love I loved drawing poses of him and I did one cartoon that I really was proud of the uh, Portal Combat. Oh, I love. And Portal I got Combat. to I got to draw so I got to go to town drawing <laughs> Coyote on that and I I really do love Coyote. I I mean I will say I'll I will get my eyes will cross if I watch more than like three or four Coyotes back to back. But I, I never get tired of, of looking through those cartoons frame by frame and studying the animation and just the, the drawings and how you draw that character. And I miss drawing him. It's one of the characters I wish I got to draw more uh, while I was on the show. But I'm glad I, at least I got to touch that character for a little while and play around That's in that awesome. particular sandbox. Yeah. So. I mean, especially with how much it means to you and your grandfather and that connection, I think, is really special as well. One last um, little anecdotal story before I go. Right before COVID, because we had to do our, I uh, we near the end of the show, they sent us home for COVID, yeah. and I only got to work on two more shorts. It was the one, the the one with Sylvester and Porky at the inn, mm-hmm. in the, that was in the Halloween one, and then another one which hasn't aired yet. Those are my last two. But right before that, we didn't know that we we're going to be sent home. We wanted to. <laughs> Jim did this beautiful drawing of Bugs as Big Chungus, <laughs> and I wanted to. I I was I was literally like i was going to i asked jim for a high-res copy of that image so i can have it made into a large cutout so i could just put it in pete's office Mm -hmm. 
and then it would just be there. So everywhere he would go, he would see Big Chungus. <laughs> and um, then COVID came, and we didn't end up get, getting to do that. And the funny thing was about that one last little. I keep saying one last. I'm ten, I tend to ramble. I apologize, but uh, uh, we did that cartoon where Bugs gets fat. Mm-hmm. Our friend David Share boarded that one. It was a Kenny, Kenny Pittenger directed it. And, yeah, and robust bunny. Mm-hmm. Yeah, robust bunny exactly. And uh, we did that cartoon of Bugs getting fat. And then the week that David Share pitched it, Big Chungus became a meme. And we were like, people are just going to think we made a Big Chungus cartoon. But it was like the timing was so surreal that like somehow Fat Bugs from uh, that old Fat Bugs image became like a meme. Yeah. Right as we're making a fat a cartoon where Bugs gets fat. That's amazing. And we were like, and the thing is you wish that you could just tell everybody, no, that's not how it is. Or like the thing about like, oh, Elmer not having the guns. That's not how it, you know, that's, there's a lot more to it than, you know, it meets the eye. And uh, it's, it's nice to be able to like tell stories about the behind the scenes and like clue people in on how these things are made a little bit and give them a clue as to how these, how these shows are made. So uh, a lot of um, rumor and, and misinformation doesn't continue to spread around. That's what I'm but, here for. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> Yeah, thanks again for uh, allowing me to to wax nostalgic because I missed that show. Absolutely. Well, thank you for being on. Congratulations on everything going on with the Annie nomination and and your animation work. Uh, I can't wait to see what else you work on next. Uh, can you tell the people where to find you and um, yeah, what to look forward to? Uh, yeah. Um, so I'm mo- mostly on. You can find me on Instagram. I think it's just Michael J. Rocco on instagram r-u-o-c-c-o on instagram i'm on twitter a lot probably more than i should be but it's uh twitter at uh you know at a guy who draws that's my handle on there and i post i do a lot of warm-ups i do a lot of doodles in storyboard pro i actually ever since working on looney tunes and stuff i actually really do like doodling in the program so a lot of my doodles are using the same program i made the shorts in um and it's fun to draw on that software um there's a couple things coming up i can't really talk about yet I'm, I'm i'm in between gigs right now i'm looking right now it seems like everywhere it's sort of it's a weird time yeah. in animation right now and so we're all just sort of holding our breath seeing what's going to happen but um i have a couple things on the docket um on the side but also it's going to be more looney tune shorts coming i don't know when they're coming out but we still there's still a bunch that we all worked hard on and eventually will get released and we're all really proud of them. And, um, and I also was on the Porky and Daffy movie for a bit and, uh, you know, it, we had such a blast on that and, you know, hope that keeps going through and sees the light of day and, Same. uh, yeah. So that's, uh, we're, but either way, that's where you can find me on Twitter, mostly Twitter and Instagram. Perfect. Thank you, Mike. And, um, you can follow the podcast over at this means pod on, uh, facebook and on instagram or ofc this means pod on twitter you can also follow the tiktok at this means podcast uh where i started talking a little bit about the anticipation everyone has uh, and making people more aware of the coyote versus acme movie uh produced by james gunn so you can check out that over there and i'll be covering everything looniverse uh here at the podcast so keep up to date and as always that's not all folks
Have a good one. So tell me, Doc, when you find this, um, rabbit, what are you gonna do with it? Oh, no, no, I can't say it. Oh, no, no, no. Oh, come on. Tell me. No, 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 it's too gruesome, too gruesome. No, no, no. I'm genuinely curious. Please? Well, uh, I shouldn't tell you, but if I could, I'd say... I'm gonna catch him and maul him and beat him and skin him and grind him up and make him into rabbit meatballs! But I'm not gonna tell you. Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, no, 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 no.